Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I am joined by Shani McCabe of Baker Creek Seed Company. We will be discussing heirloom varieties of squash, melons, cucumbers, and watermelons. She has a wealth of knowledge and growing experience to share. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello. (laughs) So welcome, Shannon. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you for having me. Yeah, my name is um, Shannon or Shani McCabe. I am a horticulturist, uh, catalog writer, former garden manager for Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company. So what would you consider exactly is the difference between an heirloom variety and and a cultivar, like a hybrid cultivar? Sure. Um, So Heirloom and open pollinated. I would love to go over those definitions. Um, Open pollinated means that you have seeds that can be saved year after year. So a great example would be an heirloom tomato. When you bite into that heirloom tomato, you love the flavor, you can go ahead and save those seeds, plant them, and the next year, as long as there wasn't some sort of cross-pollination that accidentally happened, you will get the same variety that you you so you enjoyed that striped red tomato and when you planted it you and when you plant it the next season you will get a striped red tomato open pollinated means that it was bred by uh, natural means this means um, insect wind or very minimal human intervention like using hand pollination techniques such as using a feather or a toothbrush but This is in contrast to a hybrid variety. So you've got open pollinated and then you've got hybrid. And I'll get into heirloom versus open pollinated just after that. So a hybrid variety, maybe something like an F1 hybrid, would be a more recent selection of genetics. So you have a red tomato and you have a yellow tomato and you're going to cross pollinate these with more intensive intervention. You're gonna cross the pollen between these two varieties. You're gonna select for um, certain traits. You're gonna isolate to make sure no insects get in and do any cross pollinating. And you're going to select a new for new characteristics and make your own hybrid tomato that looks differently than its uh, its parents. If you do not stabilize the genetics, if you just enjoy that hybrid as a cross between those two varieties, then that is a hybrid. You will not be able to save seeds from your hybrid tomato. So if you really want to boil it down simply, an open pollinated variety, you can save the seeds reliably year after year. With a hybrid, it's going to uh, the seeds, if you plant them the next year, they will have a random set of genetics and often they will not be favorable genetics. It'll be very random and you may come out with a really unpleasant tomato. Sometimes you get a cool tomato, but often 
it's going to be a totally random set of genetics. So when you stabilize those genes and it's just by natural means or by hand pollinating, that is an open pollinated variety. So we'll talk about the difference between heirloom versus open pollinated. All heirlooms are open pollinated. Heirloom seeds are open pollinated varieties and they usually have some kind of historical context family history, they've been passed down generation to generation, or they've been grown in a certain region, and they have a little bit of historical context. Some people define um, the definition of an heirloom as being 50 years or older, but not everyone subscribes to that definition. At Baker Creek, we consider an heirloom to be an open pollinated variety that has a significant background or story. The reason we don't like to keep that 50 year rule is because there are some really amazing modern day heirlooms that are being bred right now. And we don't wanna discount those or exclude them from our offering because we're so grateful for those open pollinated breeders and the work they're doing. The reason we're so grateful is because one, they're making an incredible creative endeavor by breeding these new open pollinated varieties. But two, very thankfully, these breeders are not patenting their varieties. They're not going to be getting royalties on their seeds. No, there's no control over the genetics of their seeds. When they create these open pollinated new heirloom varieties, they sell those seeds, they become distributed, they can be passed along hand to hand through family members or through seed, seed exchanges or seed libraries. And nobody is controlling that seed genetic information, they're just being passed along. There's no royalties being paid out. So those open pollination uh, breeders, some people call them OP breeders, they're really not heavily profiting off of their hard work. And so we like to include them in our catalog, make sure that we give credence and reverence to their hard work. And, and so we want to include them in our definition of heirlooms. So yeah, an heirloom seed always has some kind of history or backstory, whereas an open pollinated variety, that's really more a botanical definition, really just referring to how the seeds came to be, how they were bred. So Baker Street has incredible, incredible selection. How do you go about finding the new varieties that you're going to be including in the catalog? We have so many different ways that we come across the seeds that we offer. A lot of times we get letters in the mail. This is one of my favorite ways for us to get a new, a new quote, variety new to us is when we get a letter in the mail, usually from an, an older person who is worried that their family heirloom is going to disappear. Heirloom seeds are beautiful. They're, they're passed down. Often they're passed down generation to generation, and they're very bioregionally specific to a certain area. You'll find old Appalachian heirlooms, old Ozark heirlooms, heirlooms from the Amish communities in Pennsylvania. So when you are lucky enough to get a letter in the mail from a person who wants to make sure that their seeds you know, don't die out, maybe their, their kids or their grandkids are no longer interested in gardening, they'll pass those seeds on to us, maybe give them a family name or a regional name. And we try as hard as we can to preserve those seeds. We'll put them in our seed bank. And if they, we think that they would work out in the catalog, we'll actually offer them in the catalog. So that does happen quite a bit. And that that is how many of our popular heirlooms came to be. A lot of them were first featured in the Seed Savers Exchange catalog or the Seed Savers Exchange website. And 
now they've become popular heirlooms traded you know, throughout the country and even globally, but they just started out as a little family heirloom. The, the last few generations have become less, a bit less interested in gardening and farming. So this is a major reason why things like commercial seed catalogs and also seed exchanges like Seed Savers Exchange are so important because they become like a backstop to make sure a safety net to make sure that you don't entirely lose your family variety. Maybe you've been saving it for many generations. You don't want to see that die out just because your grandson or granddaughter is not particularly interested in farming. Yeah, absolutely. How long do the plants get trialed in the plots before deciding whether they're going to be considered for the catalog? That can really depend. When we get seeds like that through the mail with very little backstory, they will be trialed for longer because we really need to see how they're going to behave in our region. We need to make sure that they're genetically stable. There could be concerns with genetic inbreeding if there wasn't a diverse enough population of uh, plants that the seeds were harvested from. So when we get seeds just from individual seed savers, we do rigorously trial them to make sure that everything's clean with their background. And then sometimes we do acquire seeds from other places. Sometimes we buy from smaller regionally adapted seed companies. When we get seed stock from a seed company, you don't have to trial it for quite as long because you kind of, that work has been done. So those trials are more in the interest of, do we like this plant? Are we, you know, we'll evaluate flavor, height, bloom size, bloom time, how long it blooms in the season, and just the behavior. We'll, we'll monitor the behavior of the plant make sure there aren't any inconsistencies with the genetics or anything like if any patterns or colors that are supposed to be in the mix have started to die out, anything like that. So a shorter trial period when we do acquire seeds from like a professional source, like a seed company, and then probably usually a longer trial period if we get them from an individual seed saver, just to make sure we got quality control. So getting into the squash a little bit, if people have restricted space, which bush forming or short lining varieties would you suggest? For squash, you're saying for squash? Yeah. Well, we've got the, I think we still have the baby acorn squash. That's a nice one. I believe our honey boat delicata might be, hold on. Let me, I got to think about this for a second. Sure. Well, we've always got the zucchini are a great choice for, for short vines, obviously, because they're more of a bush, a bush habit. So for bush habit squash this year, we'll be offering, um, we do have a Polish variety. It has a very complicated name that I'm going to struggle to pronounce. Um, Makaronawa warzowska squash that is a <laughs> polish variety and it is a bush forming spaghetti squash we were really really excited to have a bush habit spaghetti squash it's also really productive i made that one into a traditional pasta this year for the national heirloom expo and it was really amazing um but we also have the Gelbert Englisher custard squash. That one is really funky. If you're into beautiful ornamental heirlooms, I do recommend the Gelbert Englisher. That one, it just, it's a patty pan squash, but it has a, a different kind of form. It looks like it's almost melting. It's got this like kind of Salvador Dali looking 
form to it. It's, it looks like it's melting in space. It's really, really cool. And then the baby blue Hubbard squash is another one that has a bush habit. If you're looking for a really reliable winter squash, that's going to store for a really long period. So Hubbard squashes are famous for being some of the longest, having some of the longest storage quality. And so the baby blue Hubbard is going to have that bush habit that you want to save space and it's uh, productive and you're going to get squash that you can hold on to very late into the season if you store it properly. Which would you suggest for best flavor? You know what? I love the baby blue Hubbard squash. I think that one's really tasty. It's got that classic. You can, you can do anything from squash, you know, squash soup and bisque to pumpkin pie with a Hubbard squash. So I really have to put my vote in for that one. For people who have a lot of pest pressure, is there a cucurbita muschiata that you would suggest that grows well, has good flavor, interesting story? Pest pressure. I'm trying to think of my, my most, because I've got running that through my mind. I've got a few that I've noted as being particularly pest resistant. Oh, well, definitely the Seminole pumpkin. If you're looking for the most hardy squash on the planet, one that can just stand up to heat, humidity, insect pressure, disease, then that is the Seminole pumpkin. It is believed to be a native variety of Florida, of the Everglades, of the Seminole Native American tribe. And I am a Florida grower. We struggle heavily to grow any kind of squash down here because of the heat and humidity. And the Seminole pumpkin is extremely reliable for us down here. And at the same token, I've seen it grown up north and it grows beautifully. It is the most rugged squash I've ever seen. So definitely the Seminole pumpkin. And it should also be mentioned, the Seminole pumpkin has a really fantastic flavor. It's got a butternut quality to it. Nice. I definitely love eating squash seeds and have been finding the hullless pumpkins to be quite delicious. Have you found the same thing? Yeah, I love the pepitas. I love, I love the dual purpose that you get out of a, a seed, a naked seeded pumpkin. And we do have this beautiful variety called Lady Godiva, which is like a play on, you know, Lady Godiva was nude and this, the, it's a naked seeded pumpkin. So very cute. Um, but yeah, the, the naked seeded pumpkins have a pretty fantastic history. Can I, should I get into the history of this pumpkin? Absolutely, please. Okay, so squash, as we know, are native to what was, you know, at some points referred to as the New World, so native to the Americas. And squash were grown by Native Americans for so many utilitarian purposes and for food purposes. It was a, a very versatile crop and definitely a cornerstone of the Native American diet. When the conquistadors came and took many, so many things. They took seeds and they took seeds for squash and brought them back to Europe. As Europeans were introduced to squash, they had all kinds of different ideas and takes on how to eat and how to use these plants. Um, they also pretty quickly took to breeding and selecting their own unique characteristics in and in the squash plants. So um, squash are very genetically diverse and they, they can express a huge array of different colors, shapes, and sizes, as we know. If you just look at the Baker Creek selection of, of squash, you'll be, your mind will be blown at the difference in size, shape, and color and form. It's incredible. So squash made it to Europe and it was off to the races. There were many different 
interpretations of how the squash could look or even taste. There was lots of variation. So squash made it to Austria and this was several hundred years ago and squash makes it to Austria and Austrians find that they really, really like to eat pumpkin seed and they like to press the seeds into oil, grind the seeds into like a peanut butter type confection. And, but they also realized that as we know, when we try to eat a pumpkin seed, that tough outer hull is kind of a pain. It, it made pressing for oil and grinding into to paste and to butter really tricky. So to get around that, they started um, meddling with a little bit of breeding to see how they could get maybe a thinner hull. Now, one farmer in Austria, particularly in the Styria, Styria, particularly in the Styria region of Austria, he found, he cracked open one of his pumpkins and found that the seeds had zero hull on them. Absolutely no hull. It just happened to be a genetic mutation. He found that his seeds did not have any covering on them. They were just those little green pepitas like we get in the store now. So he selected those seeds and he saved them year after year. And this became the dominant cultivar of the area. This was the naked seeded pumpkin. And so this, this took away all of the processing that was required previously to get the holes off of the seeds. So it was much easier to make things like pumpkin butter and pumpkin oil. And uh, to this day, styria is still, styria is still a popular, it's still the main region where naked seeded pumpkins are grown. And so the varieties that we offer in our catalog are predominantly Austrian varieties and they're Austrian heirlooms selected for a massive quantity of seeds and the seeds are naked so you don't have to do any processing you don't have to chew around that that crunchy hull so it's also an incredible dual purpose crop because you also do get the pumpkin flesh so you kind of get a twofer you get tons of seeds and then you get to make a nice soup or roasted squash so I love the Lady Godiva pumpkin we have a couple other varieties the variety Kakai is another naked seeded variety and it actually has bush habit. It's, it's got shorter vines. So that one's really great if you have limited space. Perfect. Another squash that I found had a fantastic story on your website and I'm going to be growing it for the first time this year is the Yokohama. Would you mind sharing that story with us? Yes. Yeah, so I said that the genetic diversity of squash really was deeply explored in Europe, but I really should have said that it was deeply explored globally because the squash has really taken different shape and form depending on what country it gets, it travels to. And, and Japan is no exclusion. The Japanese squash are some of the most delicious squash varieties I've ever had in my life. I highly recommend if you've never had a Japanese squash, go out and get one. Try the Yokohama squash. That one has a really silky texture. These varieties are known as chestnut fleshed. Um, if you've ever had a chestnut, they have that kind of unique sort of silky creamy texture to them. And so that was a big factor in selecting and breeding for the Japanese squash was to really select for a silky and creamy texture, just like the beloved chestnut. And so the Yokohama squash and many other Japanese varieties 
are considered highly gourmet because they've got this very unique texture. It's not watery, it's not stringy. It's just very highly refined. It also is, um, they, can, they can run from sweet to, to more musky, nutty. There's a, a range of flavors. So uh, this is just an incredible way that we see each, each country putting its own spin on, on squash. And I, and I love the Japanese squash. And that particular one almost disappeared, right? It was, it was kind of considered to be lost. Yeah, yeah, that one was a great example of how easy it is for these open pollinated heirlooms to kind of disappear because they really just go with with whatever the public's preferences are at the time. And so, uh, yeah, we've seen many varieties. We've lost many varieties, countless varieties because of, you know, changing public interest or, you know, it wasn't the most, the greatest variety for shipping or storage. But this is one that we did manage to track down after lots and lots of searching. And it was, it was really fantastic to see something that was at one point popular and then uh, kind of fell out of interest, disappeared almost entirely. And then it was, uh, yeah, brought back. Okay. So to move to a different Cucurbitaceae, would you mind talking about melons a little bit? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I, so um, there's melons and then there's watermelons and I, I love both. I'm really astounded by the sheer diversity of Cucumis mellow, the, of, of the melons, the true melons. There are so many more than just the honeydew and the cantaloupe that you see in the grocery store. There are Asian melons like the apple melon where you can actually, or the kiku chrysanthemum melon rather, where you can actually eat the skin, eat the, eat the fruit skin and all out of hand like you're eating an apple. And Asian melons tend to have a more tart flavor. They, they borderline tasting like um, an Asian pear. They're a little bit tart, a little bit sweet, and they have a crispy, crunchy flesh, not so soft. And then you've got the French melons, like the Charente melon. There is such an incredible diversity. It really ranges. Then you've got the, the Persian melons, which look like what we know today as cantaloupes. The Persian melon then comes to America, and especially in California, there's just an explosion of different types of cantaloupe with netted skin and smooth skin, but that bright orange flesh and that musky flavor. So there's really so much more. When we think about melons, you tend to conjure up just the image of a, a honeydew or a cantaloupe. But if you really get to explore the, if you, I invite people to check out our catalog or just go online. If you explore the diversity of melons that are available, um, your mind will be blown. I mean, there were even melons like the Queen Anne's pocket melon or the Tigger melon, which are really beautiful, bright orange and red stripe. They're like a really visually stunning melon. And they are incredibly heavily perfumed. They smell super fragrant, beautiful smell. And they were actually used during the Victorian era. Women would, ladies in waiting would keep the melon, a small melon in their pocket as like a type of 
all natural perfume um, to make sure that they always smelled fantastic, uh, which I think is so bizarre. And actually, if you eat those melons, they're pretty bland for flavor. It was really, they were just bred to smell intoxicating. And I do love to do landscaping with those melons because they really create an ambiance in the garden with just a hugely impactful scent. And are there any short season melons that you would suggest? Yeah, I love the Asian melons to get into for a short season. So the Sakata sweet melon and the Kiku chrysanthemum melon, those two are super, super short season and they're going to mature a lot faster than, than some of the other melons. So they're better for, um, actually I like to grow them here in Florida because we have a small window from here in central Florida, where I live, we have a small window after the last potential frost date passes when the soil is adequate, adequately warm enough for cucurbits. We have about a 90 day window before the uh, summer rains come in and um, rain will really destroy a melon crop. Excess rain can really mess up your melons because they don't, they like to actually have some dry weather as they're maturing if they really want to take on a good flavor. So I like to squeeze in a crop of the Kiku chrysanthemum melon or the Sakata sweet. If you're looking for a traditional melon that matures in a shorter period of time, unfortunately, I wish the name was a little bit better, but it's called the Minnesota midget melon. And that one was selected for earlier maturation. So that one is a traditional, you know, kind of a more traditional melon and it, it matures early. Something that I've noticed with the cantaloupe types is it's easy to tell when they're ripe because they'll slip off the vine. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. But with the honeydew types or even some of the Asian ones, how would you suggest gauging ripeness? I know sometimes it's rind will become a little bit more shiny. The color will change slightly around the stem. It'll, it'll start to get calloused a little bit. But what would you suggest? Sometimes people say smell. I haven't had too many that have shown me that, but what would you suggest for those types? Yeah. And, and actually not all cantaloupes self-slip either. So it's a good, it's always good to know the trick for when to harvest melons because they don't always harvest themselves or self-slip. So the way that I always use, it's tried and true, it works great for me, is I just, I, I locate the blossom end of the fruit and I just gently press on that blossom scar. And if the blossom end scar just gives just a little bit, then that is a pretty good indicator that the variety is mature. Now, when you get into the things like the honeydews that are super hard, it, it is still the rule that if you press, if you can depress that blossom end, then they're mature. But you can use other indicators like smell I wish there was a, I mean, the closest I've ever come to one universal answer is checking the, the softness of the blossom end scar. But, you know, with the diversity of melons, it is almost hard to find one single answer. It can vary depending on variety. And some, some are from the smell. Some are from getting to that final ripe color. But I would say if you, if you don't know your specific varieties, kind of marker for ripeness, always defer to the soft, soft blossom end scar trick. Cause that does, that's pretty reliable. And then watermelons is a different story. Before we get to watermelons, mm -hmm. would you mind talking a little bit about cucumbers? Cause they're also cucumis. 
but not quite from the same part of the world. That's something else that I do find is to be quite fascinating is how much Cucurbitaceae has been developed in different parts of the world, quite diverse parts of the world. And that family has gone in many different directions and been selected for many different things. Yeah. And, well, I know certain people have difficulty digesting cucumbers. And so this year I'm trialing a bunch of different cucumis mellow that are cucumber tasting. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> actually like melons, but they taste like cucumbers and look like cucumbers. The Armenian yard long cucumber melon is, is a good example of that. Um, that one does have cucumber qualities, but it's not technically a cucumber. And then you can get the burpless or the bitter free varieties as well, which does help. Typically people consider the culprit on um, bitter flavor or the burping quality with cucumbers to be the seeds or the pulp around the seeds. So if you get a variety that has lesser developed seeds, that does help. Some people also attribute the skin. So a thinner skin variety can also help in that regard. Yeah, I am always astounded by how how diverse the cucumber family can be. I'm particularly fond of thin-skinned cucumbers. If you are a farmer and you're looking for a variety that ships and has thick skin and isn't going to get bruised up, obviously the market more is a classic. And then you've got like the, the uh, Boston pickling for a pickling variety. And the early fortune is another one. If, if you want a more rugged cucumber with a thicker skin, those are great choices. But if you like a thin skinned cucumber, you're not so concerned about, you know, shipping time or um, shelf life. And you want something that you can really savor off the vine fresh, or you are doing more high-end markets, or you've got a clientele who are ready to buy your cucumbers ASAP, and you're not going to have to worry about shipping them long distance. Any of the Japanese cucumbers are so off the charts, tender and tasty. They, they've got they're pretty much bitter free. They've got really thin skin. We've got one variety, Anaga Jibai cucumber. That one has a, it's a thin skin, long slender cube. It's got very small seed cavity or well, I wouldn't call it a cube. It's got very underdeveloped small seeds. Uh, China Jade cucumber is like, it's got a green flesh on the inside. And it's another one that has a, a thin skin, really tender, tender flesh. These are those high-end cucumbers that you see wrapped individually in plastic at the grocery store. These are like 10 times better than even those. So if you are into the thin-skinned, definitely the Yamato extra long cucumber is another great one. And then there's like the, the novelty cucumbers, which are delicious in their own right, like the dragon's, you know, dragon's egg cucumber and the crystal apple cucumber and the lemon cube. The lemon cube is one that was, uh, it happens to be particularly popular in Australia, but it's also becoming popular, especially at farmer's markets in the U.S., and it doesn't really have much of a citrus flavor, maybe slightly citrus tone, but it's all about the looks with the lemon cube because it's round and looks like a little lemon. It's, it's a great one for kids' gardens. Have you tried cooking with cucumbers? I really haven't cooked with cucumbers personally. I've seen them grilled and I've heard good things about grilled cucumbers. I would say the China Jade would be a good one for, for grilling. But yeah, no, not as much as I'd like to. I've noticed a lot of diversity in the plant growth as well. 
I guess because some of them are different species, but also just in terms of vigorousness. Are there any you find to be particularly resistant to say the a striped cucumber beetle? Mm, uh, it's hard to make promises with the striped cucumber beetle because that is an incredibly successful pest. Um, they really do their job beautifully. Uh, we do find the dar cucumber, D-A-R, dar, is a little bit more resistant to general, most general cucumber stressors like heat and humidity. So if a, if a cucumber is doing better throughout the stressful parts of the season, it's going to hold up and weather through pest pressure better too. So I do recommend the dar cucumber and then um, Monica as well. Those two are, are known to be pretty vigorous and they can kind of uh, weather more abuse than others. But I wish I did have an answer on, you know, the one cucumber that can handle the squash bugs and the cucumber beetle, but uh, it's tricky. I even saw a squash boar lay an egg on a cucumber plant this spring. I, I oh no, surprised. I've never <laughs> seen that. Yeah, yeah. I, we get a lot of pickle worms down here in Florida and those are a real pain. So to move to the, the watermelons now, back to a melon, but distantly related. <laughs> and also from somewhere completely different. That's the one that is not Asian or of American no, exactly. Ancestry. However, a lot of work has been done in America with the watermelon. Yes. This year, I'm going to be trying the Royal Golden. From oh, I love website. that one. Yeah. Pretty excited. The Golden Midget has done reasonably well here, although not nearly as well as Blacktail Mountain. That's been my yep. best. Well, that makes sense because you have a short season and Blacktail Mountain does well in, uh, in short season areas. Are there any other ones that you would recommend for short season? For short season? Well, there's always Sugar Baby Bush. Um, that one's going to be very reliable for a short season. Yamato Cream. Yamato Cream is a really unique watermelon. It's actually got a white flesh. Actually, you know what? We switched to Silver Yamato this year. And yeah, so y Silver Yamato watermelon. Um, that one is a fairly early maturing watermelon and it has the most astounding flavor. It's just, it's hard to describe. It's just, it's an intensely sweet and the, the texture's really on point. This is another example of just intense dedication to quality in Japanese breeding. So Silver Yamato watermelon is really high quality and and fairly early to mature. I also really love Orange Glow, and that one was actually bred in Texas, but I grow that one reliably up, up in Rhode Island. Alibaba grows really well up in New England and, uh, and is a, going to squeeze in and grow pretty quickly, even in a short season. So those are some that I really love. And, and if you really need something reliable, Blacktail Mountain and Sugar Baby are probably the earliest and the most reliable. Benny Kodama is a, is a pocket size. It's a very small watermelon and it does mature earlier. So the flavor is good on Benny Kodama, but, but it's really the more, it's, it's just exciting because it's small and personal size and early to mature. But if you're really going for like wow factor on flavor, Orange Glow, Blacktail Mountain, and Yamato, Silver Yamato, those are great ones. I was curious about the lemon drop, but there were no seeds left available. 
It looks pretty neat. And it had a short season the as well. Top is pretty wild. I it's yeah. like it, that color is outstanding. Yellow, yellow gold from skin to center. And uh, I have tried it personally myself. Grew it out in California, and it was delicious. It's a really funky watermelon, but unfortunately, it did sell out very fast this year. Not surprising. And it does mature quickly. It's always seventy days to maturity, so it's early. Yeah. And you mentioned Alibaba. Would you mind sharing that story with us? Yeah. So the Alibaba watermelon is another reminder of how delicate our our seeds can really be in their future. The Alibaba is one of the best tasting watermelons I've ever had. It is one of the most reliable watermelons I've ever grown. It would be devastating if we did not have this watermelon available to us because it's a really reliable, delicious variety and it was nearly lost um this is a variety that has been grown for many generations in iraq and we were given seeds by a seed saver named uh asis nael he is from iraq and he was very worried about the future of heirlooms there as conflict was arising getting in the way of growing saving seeds I know there was one seed bank in Syria that had a like a security issue. Um, so the concern was that the seed would not be able to uh, proliferate any longer throughout the conflict. So this man sent us some seeds hoping to make sure that the, the variety was not lost. And it actually became just so beloved by our customers and here at the, the farm that it's um, a go-to variety that we will probably never be without. And it's just, it's, it's a beloved variety, but it really does show us how easily these varieties can be lost. And um, so it's, it's really heartening to see that this will not be lost. And it's also, you know, it's a vegetable food ambassador for, for the country of Iraq. So it's a good emblem of a, of a beautiful culture. And I suppose similar to the Yokohama one, that sometimes when you give it to another country to preserve, it can be also given back again. Yeah, it, it's like safekeeping. You know, sometimes exactly. that's really what it is. It's not about appropriating or taking because we can't own these things. You know, if you pass these seeds on, it's more of safekeeping. I mean, preservation through, through proliferation is really the idea there, where if you're concerned that you might lose this variety, having it grown out even by someone who is not in your region, it, it can be a safety net to make sure that the variety isn't entirely lost. And yeah, because these are open pollinated varieties, we can never own them. We can never tell anybody that they can't grow them. You can't, you cannot control that seed. It's, it's getting it out into the population and getting it growing only makes things stronger. Absolutely. And something else that I find has been interesting since I've been growing watermelon this year I have 16 varieties. Last year I had 12. And of all of them, they all have seeds. Only one, I find the seeds to be tough. I find watermelon seeds to be tender and delicious. I'll eat them as I'm eating the watermelon or take them out and roast them like I would squash mm. seeds. Yum. Um, but the importance of seeded watermelons instead of seedless. Yeah, we don't really offer any seedless watermelons. 
they're the seeds are nutritious they're pretty they're pretty important food in africa and it would just be a shame to get rid of them because they are edible they're they're great for you i'm not sure if they possess antiparasitic qualities but i know that that's something that is touted with squash seeds i have to look into that more be interested to know but they're nutritious they've got protein i'm not really sure why people don't like seeds and watermelons i can't really wrap my head I have found when I have given away watermelons or shared them with people, they find that the watermelons that I grow, the seeds are much more tender than the ones that you get from the store. And the only one that I have here that I don't find has very tender seeds, the seeds are a bit more tough, is scaly bark, which is a watermelon that grows vigorously, huge melons, it's an heirloom but I do find the seeds to be tough. It actually keeps quite well for a watermelon, but the seeds are a little bit harder to to bite down on. Whereas all of the other ones, I haven't had anybody, even people who usually just like seedless watermelons, I haven't had anybody complain about the seeds in homegrown watermelons. But coming to that, the question that I have is your tips for when watermelons are ripe, when to harvest. Oh, yes. So uh, there are a million theories out there, but I really have only one tried and true rule that I always follow. And that is, um, so you find your watermelon in question, the watermelon that you're wondering, is it ripe? Is it ready? Select that watermelon. And then you've got to go to the stem and you've got to travel back along the stem to the nearest tendril. And a tendril is that little curly piece of, it looks like an incomplete stem on the plant and um, check for that curly tendril closest to the fruit itself. If that curly tendril has turned brown and crispy, then the watermelon is ripe and ready to harvest. Um, Some people will thump the watermelon and listen for sound. And that is an indicator to an extent because the higher pitched a watermelon sounds when thumped, that does mean the flesh has not started to ripen and and become watery. It's more thick and dense. Um, So a lower sound of a thud does help you to know when you're getting close, but the only real way to know is that that brown curly tendril. Other people will look for a, a white spot on the underside of the watermelon, but you can get that white spot just from the plant, you know, the melon sitting on the ground and not being able to photosynthesize at all or develop any chlorophyll. So I think the best way to tell is by using that, that curled tendril method. When growing melons or watermelons, do you tend to lift them off the ground? No, not really. I mean, maybe if I had my mulch, my straw mulch and cardboard was getting really, really soaked, I would maybe rotate the melon just to make sure it's not sitting wet on one side for too long. But honestly, if you've got standing water or long periods of wet, you've got bigger problems on your hands than just having it sit there because uh, the flavor is going to be kind of bland or it might crack prematurely. Excess water during the watermelon's maturity moment there is not always ideal. So you want to cut back on the water as you're letting your watermelons finish out their last few days of maturity. Some people will, if they live in a really, really, really hot, sunny climate, if they notice a watermelon has 
a fruit has become exposed and it doesn't have any foliage over it to protect it, it will become sunburned. So they'll kind of cover it up with foliage or whatever they can do to protect it from sunburn. You can always give your fruit a quarter turn, a gentle quarter turn to make sure it's not sitting on one side for too long if you're really concerned, but I don't really find it necessary. One other question about melons. It sounds like you've grown in a lot of different places. Have you found that there's been variation in the flavor within one cultivar or a variety, depending on where oh, yeah. you're growing it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There's variation depending on your location. Um, California is one of the greatest places in the world to grow watermelon because you can get the plants to mature on with irrigation or with early season moisture. And then as the summertime progresses, California obviously gets very dry. And watermelons do take on their very best flavor when they're maturing in dry climate. So California grown watermelons are completely off the charts delicious. If you can grow a watermelon in Florida and get it to mature before the rainy season starts in, you're going to get an absolutely fantastic watermelon because they're going to thrive in the hot, dry conditions of a, a Florida spring. When I lived in New England, I got fantastic watermelons. I just had to make sure I got an early maturing variety so that they were not maturing in the fall. So I've grown in the North, I've grown in the Southeast and I've grown out West and uh, Missouri as well. And the key is really holding back water at the end of the season. You're going to get a really crummy watermelon if it's raining heavily or if you're over irrigating when it's maturing. It's just gonna crack prematurely or taste pretty watery. So to me, that's been the biggest hindrance to flavor and the biggest difference I've experienced with flavor. I'm not gonna say the flavor notes become like different or nuanced between region to region. I haven't noticed that necessarily, but definitely moisture and heat. So the drier and the hotter as the plants are finishing out and maturing, the better tasting the fruit will be. Thank you. Do you have any other stories, cultivar stories that you'd like to share? Well, this year I, I explored a different type of cucurbit entirely. I tried the Kiwano jelly melon. And if anyone is familiar with this, it is a very funky type of cucumber melon cucurbit. It, the Latin name is Cucumis metalliferis. And it is an orange fruit with spines on it. Every once in a while, you'll see them at Whole Foods or in your local grocery store in the like weird fruit section. And it's got this bright lime green jello pulp with a, with a vibrant orange skin. And it's got a citrusy flavor. But I had fun growing this in Florida this season because... It's really vigorous. It grows, the vines grow very fast and the foliage is very thick and dense and the fruits are hidden inside underneath the foliage. So at first you might think that you haven't got any fruit and then you check on the inside of the vines and they're absolutely smothered in fruit. So it was really prolific. It covered our teepee really beautifully. It made like it made a really dramatic show in the garden. And then if you are doing any kind of outreach or like trying to get kids involved in gardening or just get new people into gardening and growing or growing heirlooms or growing funky things, the Kiwano melon is just, it's a ton of fun. The Mexican sour gherkin is the same. It's also a cucurbit and it looks like a tiny, tiny 
watermelon. It looks like a watermelon that was zapped with a shrink ray and is now the size of like something that a mouse would have a picnic with. Um, so it's also nicknamed mouse melon. And the Latin name on Mexican sour gherkins is uh, Melothria scabra. Yeah, that's and, something that I find just kind of fascinating. It's not actually a cucumber or a watermelon. <laughs> yeah, it's wicked bizarre. And like, it's my favorite little edible ornamental because the leaves have a really beautiful ivy shape to them. They're just a little bit prettier than a cucumber leaf and they're small and dainty. This plant covers a little teepee or a trellis really beautifully. It's very thick and dense with its foliage, but the foliage is just really pretty. It tends to be perfect foliage. I don't, it doesn't usually get yellow or look ugly. So if you're looking for something really to beautify your landscape or put in a kid's garden, it just, it's, it's such a dainty, beautiful little edible ornamental. And then it's very productive. It is a slower plant to get going in the spring, but once the soil warms up, it, it really takes off. A little known fact about Mexican sour gherkins, which I think is really fascinating, is that if they have a long enough growing period, you can gently dig the plants up and you'll find they actually produce tubers, edible tubers beneath the ground. So it's very similar to a dahlia tuber. And it, it has a slight cucumber taste, kind of reminds you of a jicama a little bit. So yeah, this was an interesting case of a cucurbit that makes a tuber. Very neat. Well, thank you very much. Oh, it was my pleasure. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> and thank you for all that you do at, at Baker Creek. It's an incredible seed company. Highly recommend checking it out. Thank um, you. And come back to talk anytime. It's been sure. Yeah. I mean, there's the, yeah, we just talked cucurbits. There's so many other things to chit chat about. We have a lot of solanaceous at Baker Creek. We have a lot of rare solanaceous plants. Thanks for listening. As always, links are in the show notes. And if you want to connect, head over to carmenporter.com.